Amen. Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from selections throughout Ecclesiastes around the, the theme of wisdom. I'm not going to read all that's printed for you in your worship folder, but it will be on the screen behind me as we go along. You just have to kind of piece it together just for the sake of time, okay? So hear the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. And then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is God's word. We continue this morning in a series on this book of Ecclesiastes, and we're really striving to be people who are wise. We're striving after wisdom, and wisdom is... Uh, a specific definition, competency to navigate the complexities of life in a fallen world because uh, our world is full of both rules and then exceptions to those rules. And wisdom is being in touch with reality, which means accounting for both, accounting for the rules, but also accounting for the exceptions and to know how life works given that both of those things exist there. If you need an illustration in just a small way, if you can remember when you were in school, uh, one of the first things you learned about grammar was that there are certain rules to grammar. And so one of the rules in grammar in the English language is I before E, except after C. And you think, oh, this is easy. It's going to be so easy. I'll just apply the rule. But then the teacher says, no, okay, but it's, that's not all there is, right? It's I before E, except after C. There, you're right. And sometimes why, and when it sounds like A as in neighbor and way, and you think, okay, this is ridiculous. Why even have a rule if there are that many exceptions? And now it's complicated, right? And I'm, I'm 45 years old, and English is my first language, and I'd be sunk without spell check to this day. But that is what life is like. There are rules, because... We're created by God, and there's a design woven into the fabric of the world, but then there are the exceptions to the rules, because the world has fallen. Proverbs in our Bible really focuses on the rules. So you read in Proverbs, train up a child on the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And you say, yes, I'm so glad that's the way it works, and that is the way it works, most of the time. But not always. Sometimes you can do everything right. And things don't turn out the way they're supposed to because they're not just the rules, they're also the exceptions. And Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions. And you have to know both. You have to be aware of both and know how to navigate in both in order to be wise. That is, you have to know that knowing is hard. Life is vanity, the preacher's telling us. And it's vanity because of, particularly because of the times we experience and are face-to-face with these exceptions 
And that is the message of this book, that life is elusive. It slips right through our grasp. But let's be honest, we are not comfortable with that reality. We very much like to think that we're in control of our lives. And so we go about developing different strategies to get a hold on things when they begin to feel like they're out of control. And one of the strategies that we use the most to try to gain control of our lives is to know stuff. So if you're an Enneagram 5, this is your message. Okay, last week was Enneagram 9's message. This is Enneagram 5. Uh, because you think, if I can just, the, pro- the solution to my problem is to get more information, to get knowledge, to get it all worked out, to make a spreadsheet. Oh, if I can have a spreadsheet, then everything in the world feels like it's okay. You see, we can seek to learn and to know things to bring dominion which is an important part of being made in the image of God. It's a very good thing. But then we can also seek to learn and know things to try to gain control of life, which is a desire to be like God himself, which is a very bad thing. It's the essence of sin. Or we could say it this way. There's sinful knowing and there's wise knowing. And we're after the wise knowing. And the preacher, the preacher's not saying seek and search out wisdom as if it's a, as if it's a bad thing. Not at all. But he is warning us to not go too far by passing beyond imaging God to wanting to take his place and know without him. And the wise person recognizes the vanity of all such knowing and all such endeavors, and he remembers that there are limits to what we can know, and he's content to live within those limits. And so here's the question that we have to ponder together as we walk through these texts this morning. Do you ever seek to control your life through your knowing as a substitute for trusting God? Let me ask it again. Do you ever seek to control your life through your knowing as a substitute for trusting God? Here's what Ecclesiastes says. That is foolish knowing because it's out of touch with reality. And so we need to listen to the preacher's advice here. And here's the summary of what he says. Wise knowing, wise knowing has these two characteristics. It is both honest and it's humble. And you should pursue it and you should pursue a life of Honesty and humility, because if you do, the end will be happiness, a greater happiness than you experience otherwise. And so I don't know where all the H's are coming from this week and last week, but, but there they are again. We're going to look at that wise knowing is honest and it's humble, and if you rightly pursue it, the end will be happiness, a different kind or better happiness than you would experience otherwise. So let's just go through these texts together. We're going to be all over the place uh, in Ecclesiastes this morning, but first... The first thing is that wise knowing is honest. That's the character of it. It's the same point we made last week, but it needs to be made again. There is no room for sentimentalism or nostalgia in wisdom. The wise person is the one who is in touch with how things really are. And this is how things really are. Are you ready? Chapter 1, verse 13. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Which leads him to the conclusion of chapter 2, verse 17. So I hated life, he says. That's in the Bible. I hated life because of what was done under the sun. It was grievous to me. Now those are brutally honest and therefore profoundly wise statements about the world. So here's my question. Why don't more people talk like that? Specifically, why don't more Christians talk like that? Why is it that the more spiritual you become the less honest it seems to make you about the way the world really works. It's a real danger. If you're not aware, it's a real danger. This was brought home to me years ago, attending a funeral of a girl who was in our youth group. 
uh, years and years ago, who we love dearly. She was the young, a young mother of two very young children, and it's just a terribly sad thing. And we went to the funeral in a church uh, here, another church here in town, and there was a concerted effort in that service on the part of those leading the service to make sure that we were not sad. Uh, because, and it, and it was very clear, because if you were sad, uh, that was a problem because it meant you didn't have faith. I mean, it's just very clear from the front. Uh, and uh, we were told things like, you know, this, this sweet girl had, that we loved had gone to a better place and Jesus had the victory and so we should be rejoicing, not being sad. Uh, and needless to say, we didn't read any verses from Ecclesiastes in that service. Now, here's my confession and I'm embarrassed to say. I actually wouldn't know if we read any verses from Ecclesiastes because I left about halfway through. I just couldn't do it. I, I just really couldn't do it. And I know I'm a big sinner. That shouldn't be news to anybody. But I couldn't. Because yes, Christianity believes that death is followed by resurrection. But there was a man sitting on the second row who's going to have to pick up the pieces and figure out how to raise those two little kids by himself. And those two, you know, those two children who would go their whole life without their mom, we should hate that. It should be grievous to us that life is full of those moments. And so, Zach Eswine says, the wise cannot pretend that all is well. In fact, the preacher says, verse 18, chapter 1, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, which means that wise people weep the most because they see reality with such clarity that what happens under the sun is worthy of tears. And so, listen to these descriptions. Faithful despair, wise hatred, this is my favorite, hallowed, hollering, good complaint. The scriptures mentor us in these untidy sentiments as expressions of faith. Listen to Zach Eswine again. This is so helpful. He says, we, the wise learn not to fear revealing what is true about their despair or hatred. God's character and covenant anchor their voice and make every feeling and thought, no matter how beautiful or how foul, a matter of prayer for God to enter, presence with God to keep, or paraphernalia for God to redeem. Listen, the wise learn to manage life, not by frantically trying to glue together the knocked over vase, but by gathering all of the shattered, jagged pieces and the powdered dust from the floor and bringing it to God. The preacher doesn't hate God. He doesn't even hate life. He hates the current state of things. There's a time to hate Chapter 3, verse 8. And this is it, because Eden wasn't like this. Heaven won't be like this. We are not meant to live in a home like this one. And so when Jesus himself was walking on the earth, he at one point was confronted with the death of a friend. And he did not smile and princess wave his way through the crowd as they parted for him to come to the tomb. He snorted. He wept. He got ticked off because it's not supposed to be like this. In wise knowing admits that. It is, first of all, honest. And so if you're not honest, if you're saccharine and super spiritual instead, it's an indicator that your knowing is foolish and not the wise kind of knowing. Because wise knowing is honest. But secondly, it's also humble. And by humble, I mean what David Gibson writes. Listen to this. He says, believers are happy to take comfort in knowing that they do not know. They are deeply 
content with not knowing. He goes on to say, to know all there is about everything there is to know, and to know it in all ways and at all the right times so that I have every bit of relevant data in front of me, that is the kind of control over the world that Ecclesiastes is teaching me to surrender. I cannot know, and therefore I don't have to know. Listen, do you hear that last line? I cannot know, and therefore I don't have to know. So from the text, this is chapter 8, all the way down at the very bottom, where the preacher says, Then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Listen, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so the wise person is the one who knows there's much more that we don't know than that we do. And therefore, we should, look at even, we should even look at what we do know from the perspective of what's beyond us and not the other way around. In our knowing, there should be an acknowledgement of our need. There should be a humility because of the inherent incompleteness in our knowing. The wisdom that is from above, James writes in his letter, listen to this, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I read that and I think, oh, can we have more of that? How would our nation, how would our culture, how would our country, particularly in this time of strife, be different if there was more of that? Wisdom that is peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy. We should pray for leaders like that because those are wise people. The fool is the, is the know-it-all. And so if you're not humble, if you're confident in your knowing, it's, it's not the wise kind of knowing because the wise person is the one who doesn't try to control life through their knowing because they're well aware that they could never know enough to pull it off. I mean, just verse 15 in chapter 1 just stuck out to me. It probably, it prob- if you're a parent, it should be your life verse probably. It says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. But actually, there's a balance. There really is a balance that the preacher is aiming for in his advice. And we didn't read this part, but it probably is my favorite part of all the Ecclesiastes has to say. It's chapter 7. It's printed there for you, but it says this. He says, be not overly righteous. <laughs> I love it. Did you hear that? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool, for it's good that you should take hold of this. Now that's remarkable because it's, it says there's a danger in being overly righteous. It's possible to be too righteous. And it's possible to be too wise, which I take to mean to not account for your limits and to become too sure about your own knowing. You can be too wise, and you can also be a fool. You can know too much and not really know in all of your knowing, or you can know too little. There are really two kinds of fools, is what the the scripture would teach us. There's the moralistic fool who says there's only right and wrong. And then there's the relativistic fool who says there's no right and wrong. So you can look at the world in one of two ways. You can look at it and see only inevitability. You can look at the world and say, this is the way the world works. There's rules, and if you follow the rules and you do the right thing, then success should be guaranteed. And if you don't follow the rules and you don't do the right thing, then failure should be guaranteed. Or you can be that kind of fool, or you can be the person who looks at the world and sees only randomness and says there are exceptions to every rule, and so there's no use in even trying. And just give up. Both people 
are fools because they both deny the reality of God at the end of the day, that there is a personal God on the throne of the universe and the world in which we live. And to hit that golden mean that the preacher's aiming us at, we need, we need God to meet us at that very place right there. Uh, and that is exactly what the preacher does. We need specifically what he calls the fear of God there, chapter 7, verse 18. So look there again. This is important to see how this works. He says, be not overly righteous and be not overly wicked. It is good that you should take hold of this for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So it's only if God himself has his proper place in your life that you'll avoid the dangers on both sides. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fear there, of course, means it refers to awe and respect and wonder at both the greatness and the goodness of God, that he is both great and good at the same time. So the person who properly fears God knows that there's no sense in trying to gain an edge over him to force his hand because God is great. He does according to his will in heaven and on earth, and none can stay his hand. You can't control your life with your knowing because you're not in control, and God is not in your debt. He's in debt to no one, and he will do what he will do. But you also come to learn that you don't have to control your life because he's not only great, this God that the scriptures teach us about and the Christians believe in, he is also good. He, listen to this, he is more eager than you are to do good to you and those you love and to fill your life with good things for you to enjoy. And with that God reality, his greatness and his goodness sitting upon your soul the way it's meant to, specifically when you know deep in your bones that he's both good and great, and you come to see that all you really need to know is you just need to know him. That the universe is not raw material for us to shape and learn to control through scientific technological advancement. Wisdom, wisdom is often sought because it brings power, but that is also called an idol. We do not need to know so that we can live without God. We need to know him. That's the burden. We need to know him no matter who you are, no matter where you are. On the spectrum of faith this morning, a truly wise person understands that the goal of life is to know him and that knowing him is the beginning of all other knowing. Of course, God's greatness and his goodness are seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he was very lion-like, if you read the Gospels, when he confronted the demonic powers and drove them out. And when he challenged the religious and political establishment and uh, his commanding of the armies of heaven, but he is also the Lamb of God, and he was at the same time very lamb-like, gentle, merciful, soft, a favorite with the kids. Jesus was both lion and lamb because God is both great and good. But nowhere do we see this more clearly than in his death on the cross. The cross is the intersection of God's inexhaustible greatness and his inexhaustible goodness. And listen to the good news that I have the privilege of sharing with you this morning. Jesus Christ had to die for our sins because God is great. He is terrible in his wrath. He's a God of infinite power and authority. He is holy, a just judge committed to punishing evil and vanquishing it and punishing sin. But Jesus Christ was glad to die for our sins because God is good. He is merciful and gracious and willing to pay the penalty for sin himself and not demand it of us. 
And so the cross says this. This is the message of the cross to every life. It says this all-powerful, great king of the universe to whom we owe every breath, he loves you. He's for you. Your sins have been paid for. There's no condemnation. You're safe with him, not because he's safe, but because he's good. Wow, right? You see, I mean, wow. And that wow response there is the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. And when that is taking up space in your soul, then you won't need to be trying to be wise all by yourself to control your life through your knowing. You, you won't have to know everything, but you will desire to know him. And that's wisdom. And so wise knowing is honest, and it's also humble. But the last thing, and we're coming to a close now, is that if you pursue it, and you should, it will result in happiness. But only, listen to me, only if you pursue it as a gift and not for gain. Because life is gift, not gain. That's the title of this series. And we're going to say it over and over again, hopefully every week. Life is gift, not gain. And so some more brutal honesty from the preacher here. He's just beating us over the head with this stuff, isn't he? Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says this. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Well, why then have I been so wise? You hear what he's saying? He says, if the wise person and the fool both end up dead with nothing much to show for the way they've lived, and that's the end, and there's nothing more, well, then what's the point? Why seek to be wise then? And it's a great question. And it's a question that needs to be answered. And to get there, we have to first say there's no gain. There's no gain in knowing. There's no true ultimate gain. You can't, your knowing can't insulate your life from sad things. So don't know for that reason. Listen to this verse, chapter 9, verse 11. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Holy smokes. Here's what he's saying. Normally the fastest runner wins the race and the smartest student aces the test. And the best parent produces the best children. But not always. It doesn't happen that way. There's no sure. There's no guarantees. And so there is no true gain in wisdom. What does a man gain by all his wisdom? Chapter 1, verse 3. What's the answer? Nothing. I applied my heart to know wisdom. I perceive that this is also but a striving after wind, the preacher says. Trying to control your life with your knowing is like trying to catch the wind in your grasp. It's impossible. So listen to, to Ian Duguid. He writes, wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of God to unlock the secrets of the universe and shape existence after your own desires and control life. If, and here's my, if you're only happy when you're in control, here's my burden for you. If you're only happy when you're in control, you're never going to be happy because guess what? You're never in control. So why seek wisdom if there's no gain? Well, the answer is you seek it not for gain, but for God himself. The preacher said, verse 13, chapter 2, there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in the light than in the darkness. And so wise knowing can't bring gain in the ultimate sense, but it can't, it can't give you control over your life and your destiny, but it can help you make the most of the life you've been gifted by God. 
It is light, he says there. And I don't know about you, maybe I'm clumsy. I stumble over things in the house all the time in the middle of the day when all the lights are on. But it's way worse trying to navigate all that stuff in the middle of the night in a, in a pitch dark house. And that is the whole point. That's all I've got this morning. Isn't that great? Are you disappointed? I mean, that literally is the sum total of the wisdom of this book. Your knowing can't promise you a good life, but it can keep, but it's better. It's like, it's, it's better in that it's like walking around in the daytime rather than in the pitch dark when you can't see anything. It's way worse to live without it. And that's it. <laughs> I mean, that's it. There's no ultimate gain in wise knowing, but it's better than being completely out of touch with reality. Because here's the thing, the fear of the Lord is a happier reality than the life control illusion. Do you believe that? The fear of the Lord is a happier reality than the life control illusion because it may not change your circumstances, but it can change you into a far less controlling, far less anxious, manic person, which would make your life better. To have God as your companion and to intimately know him is the great joy of life. Life is full of small little moments of goodness and joy and that is enough. There are rules, remember, but there's a design and wise knowing conforms to God's design which brings more happiness than otherwise. And as for all of the exceptions, all those times when you do the right thing and it still goes bad, remember the preaching, preacher's parting words in chapter 12. For those things, there's a day of rectification that is coming when all of the exceptions will be brought back in line with the rules and will be judged by God, not on the basis of the outcomes, but by what he calls the secret things. That is, the unseen decisions to do the right thing, to live in obedience to him, the good deeds that do not go unpunished in our experience here under the sun, there will be on that day, they will be rewarded on that day, and there will be as a result of that day an eternal happiness as a reward for all of the wisdom you showed here. So wisdom may not always correspond to good outcomes in our days under the sun, but it will there. It will all be brought to light and made up for there. And we must live in this world of sorrow and pain for the ultimate outcome of that day and not all the days from here to there. That's what Ecclesiastes teaches. Chapter 7, verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. It isn't magic. It doesn't give us the power to manipulate the world to our advantage. But it does give us the strength to face the reality of life and to enjoy the hundred small celebrations that each day brings. And listen, that's a much better way to live, isn't it? To have the freedom and the strength to face the reality of life and to enjoy whatever small celebrations, and in fact there are many of them, much better than run around trying to control things. And that is the wisdom that the preacher would have us consider together. And so, if you would pray with me, we will continue to do that. So let's pray. Father, the first sin of the human race was the desire to know apart from you in order to live apart from you. And the same inclination of heart lives in each of us. The same impulse continues today in this room, in us. And yet we feel the reality the preacher speaks of here the way things seem to always be slipping through our grasp, our knowing cannot save us. And we do not know more than you do. And so what do we do? What, 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 what should become the aim of our life given this? Well, we know that you, 
in your goodness and mercy and condescension to us, you've made yourself known to us in Jesus Christ. You have made it possible for us to know you and to love you, which is the chief end of man. It's where we find our ultimate happiness and joy. And that is the great joy of life. And it is enough. And so I pray for my friends, no matter where we may fall, as I said on the spectrum of of faith this morning, Holy Spirit, make the Father known to us. Maybe for the first time, but maybe in a greater measure that we would take our control, take our hands off our life and stop trying to control and give our lives into your hands that we might be truly wise, which would mean brutally honest and humble, but ultimately happy, glorifying you in a hundred different ways with a hundred different small celebrations every day because though life is not gain and though there's no gain to be had, all of it is gift. And you deserve our worship. Uh, You deserve for us to sing words like we're going to sing right now, to acknowledge in this song our own weakness and need and your greatness and goodness and beauty and wisdom and to cry out to you. So make that so in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Think of what it takes to sing a song like that. What we just said was, is, God, there's so much that I cannot know. I mean, there's so much about this life that makes no sense to me that would cause me to despair, except for the fact that I may not know how life works, but I do know you. Amen. And I know that you know all the things that I don't know, and I know that I can trust you because uh, in Jesus I know that your heart is bent toward me in love. And so the only way to be able to live in that place of, you know, I don't really know what's going on, but I know the one who's in control of all of this, and that's okay, and he deserves the glory anyway. Is to know without a shadow of a doubt that, that, that he loves you. And that's what these words of benediction mean. That as we go, we do not go into a world that's not been prepared for us, but one who, which has been prepared by our good shepherd, who loves us so much that he gave his life for us. And so receive these words of benediction, and then go being okay with not knowing all that you need to know, but knowing the one uh, who knows you. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.